Hey, so I don't know if you can hear uh, the music playing in the background, uh, the laughter right now leading into music, but it was the sound of uh, a very good friend of mine uh, kind of leading into a rap song uh, that we recorded. So, of course, I guess what I'm doing right now is apologizing for that. It's been so long since the last podcast. Uh, I've been, as I have done once before, rapping into my mic instead of uh, recording a podcast, as I should have been. But um, we're back. We're back. So uh, let's head right into the show. Uh, rap free, I promise. All right. It's in a book. We'll see you in a second. Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I am Lawrence Rouse, your host. I am coming to you from Raleigh, North Carolina, and you are listening to, uh, I think, the 17th episode of It's in a Book. Uh, we've, we've been doing this for about a year now, so we probably should have more than 17 episodes, but as you well know, if you've been listening, uh, we don't always make it here every fortnight. Uh, but we, we do our best. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very busy. And uh, sometimes I'm, I'm very easily distracted. And uh, other things uh, come between myself and the podcast. However, it's right up there with uh, all the things that I love to do very, very much. So uh, we get to you as often as we can. And we're back after a fairly long uh, absence. I think maybe the longest to date. Uh, we, we approached a month and, and maybe even exceeded it just a little bit. At any rate, um, we have a great episode in store for you this time. We have an interview with a wonderful friend of my family. Her name is Courtney Buckin. Uh, we have a book by one of my favorite authors, maybe uh, my very favorite author. Uh, and I know if you've heard me talk about favorites here, um, that, that may sound either hypocritical or or uh, at least uh, like some sort of revisionist uh, history of things. But Norman Rush, uh, the author of Mating, the book that we'll read this fortnight, is is just uh, an incredible author. And uh, I really love his, uh, his work. He has a small body of work. I think he has a collection of short stories called Whites. Then he has Mating. And then he has a book called Mortals. Uh, I am eagerly awaiting uh, the publication of uh, something new by Norman Rush, and, and who knows, maybe it's already out there. I don't have a lot of time to stay abreast of the, the literary world these days. I definitely think a third novel by him would be a, a very, very big event. Uh, and in fact, as soon as this segment is over, I'm going to Google him and see if he's published one kind of under the radar while I wasn't looking. Uh, at any rate, I'm not going to belabor the point of the introduction here uh, too long. Uh, we really hope you'll enjoy the interview with, uh, with Courtney, and I know you will enjoy the reading of Mating, uh, just a little bit of it, just a tease, and uh, we'll, we'll head out of here and hopefully be back in a fortnight for a new episode. So all that said, we will see you after the break. It's in a book. Thanks for coming back to see what it is this fortnight.
Okay. So our interview this fortnight is with a very good friend of my family. Her name is Courtney Buckin. She's uh, sitting right across from me at our dining room table right now. She's very, very nervous. So nobody make any strange noises or, or do anything to, uh, to upset her. <laughs> uh, keeping in mind this is on the internet. She doesn't have to worry about any of those things. But uh, I've already familiarized her with the five questions that we'll be discussing. And so now I'm going to hit her with the surprise question. No surprise question. <laughs> it's not a question. I, I just want, want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, how, uh, how you came to be in Raleigh and, and why you left and that sort of thing. So go for it. Really Let's have it. Long. Yeah, really. Come on. Come on. Do it. <laughs> how long were you in Raleigh? I lived in Raleigh for 15 years. Wow. And... Wow decided to move closer to be with my family after the tornado. Right. Um, 2011, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so, and I have not missed Raleigh at all. No? Oh, Sorry stop to say. That. I miss you guys, but I do not miss <laughs> Raleigh. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I suppose that's acceptable. Um, so, you're now, uh, so you're going to hear all sorts of background noise this uh, this interview, guys. Where uh, Catherine is uh, is is here, we're upstairs, and Holden is running around looking for his mother and his his Lego figure Emmett from the new movie. So uh, so bear with us here. So we'll get right into the questions, Courtney. I don't want to. <laughs> you look so nervous over there. Um, the first question is uh, obviously you know I, I told you the podcast is about reading. So the first question is how do you find the time to read? Well, I don't really find the time to read books. I listen to them on audio tapes. Mm -hmm. um, so I listen while I'm cooking. I listen while I'm getting dressed in the morning. And I fall asleep at night listening to books. Awesome. Um, so it's been a while since I've read an actual hard copy of a book. Right. Right. Sweet. Sweet. What? What? Uh, where do you get your audio books? Um, Going off script here. Audible. Audible? Yeah. Nice, nice. I mean, that's, I think that's the only one I know about. Yeah. So I have it on my, I play it through Bluetooth through my speakers in the house and in the car and on all my devices, right. Android devices. <laughs> we, ha we have a, an anti-Apple uh, person here, <laughs> so uh, hopefully that's not something we could get sued over. That's supposedly the anyone listens to the podcast so hey cat smiling over there okay so the second question is how do you decide what to listen to in this case as opposed to what to read well i have um, a list that i have gathered over the years of books that i want to read um by the time i'm 40 mm -hmm. and they're ideas i've gotten from kissy from my mom from the internet um, <laughs> from oprah right so I'm working off of the list. Right. Sweet. Sweet. How long is the list? Um, there's probably 30 books on there, wow. I think. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. Is the Screw Tape Letters on there by C.S. Lewis? No. You should add it to your list. What is it? The Screw Tape Letters. Okay. And they have like the best recording of it on Audible. Uh, mm -hmm. John Cleese, you know, you, you know who he mm -hmm. is? Yeah, he reads it. It's it's really incredible. Okay. So I'll add should, it to my list. You should listen to it on your way home, in fact. You should just like promote it to the top of the list. Okay. It's a good book. Okay. So it's funny. It's kid are, are like you saying stuff behind me, woman? <laughs> what what did she say? She said it's not that good. Oh Jesus. Mutiny in my own home. Okay. So the third question is uh, are we on number three? Yes, yes. I think yes. we're actually on number five. <laughs> the third question is 
how do you feel about books as objects? Uh, you know, paper versus digital. In this case, we've already discussed the the audible format, but like as far as in your home and that sort of thing. Well, I love hard copy books. I love hardbacks. I love I love looking at them in my house. I have all the books I've ever read. Right. Um, unless someone's borrowed them, but I like them. I like to look at them in the house. Right. Um, right. So I keep them all. Do you follow like all the the bougie rules? You know, like no hardbacks with paperbacks and that no, sort of thing. No, I don't know any of the rules. Right. I yeah. I, that's the only one I know. But I think uh, I heard Oprah talking about uh, it one time. You know about how she someone came over and, and told her that you weren't supposed to mix hardcover and paperback. Oh, really? Like yeah. when they're on the shelf? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's whatever. I kind of keep similar colors together, and sometimes I keep the authors together, and um. But Kissy actually really, she opened my eyes to the world of books right. when we were in high school. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. she's been a big influence, actually. Right, so right. You should be proud of her. I am, I am. And it's usually someone, you know, who does that for us. I, my, uh, the person who did that for me was uh, a friend, Cedric Spaulding. I, I interviewed him, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, several episodes back. Um, and uh, But yeah, he definitely... Books, comic books, all sorts of things. When we were really, really young, he, he turned me on to the to the world of books. So, all right. Well, this is going way too fast. I can't believe I'm, I'm letting you off the hook. Uh, you know, with these with these super quick answers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the the uh, second to last question here is, um, and you know, I told you about this last night, so you've had all night to think about it. Um, what's your favorite book <laughs> of all time? <laughs> um. My favorite book, and I, I did have to think about it. It's all it's been Back Roads by Tawny O'Dell. Right. Um, and I had a really it's been fifteen years since I've read the book, but it's always been in my mind as my favorite book. Right. So I thought last night about it and why I liked it and what's kept me um, holding on to it. And I think not so much the story, but how she she had me like characters at the beginning of the book and hate them at the end Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. hate certain characters at the beginning that I loved at the end and I think if an author can do that it just pulls you in and it and it surprises you and it makes you think you know you don't always know what's going on in someone's life or how a person is and you just have to not judge them right up front right and that's what I liked about the book the most yeah, I, I can agree with that. I, uh, I, Kristen had me read that book like really mm-hmm. early in our relationship, and and I definitely enjoyed it. I wouldn't you know say it's one of my favorite books of all time, but I think part of that was just you know because she loved it, it so much. So that, yeah, there was a huge build up, and and lately we've become like more antagonistic in our in our book, uh, <laughs> you know, critiques anyway. But I, I definitely agree with you. I love it whenever an author can do that because it is it is uh, you know a, a bit of verisimilitude. I think I said that correctly. Where you know, it's so true to, to the way things work out in life. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know what another person has going on. And uh, it, so that's a really good thing. Jonathan Franzen is really good at that, too, I think. It, you should add that to your list, too. What Freedom you? by Jonathan yeah. Franzen. Okay. Yeah, or anything that he's written. Okay. But, uh, yeah. I haven't heard of him. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. That's, Freedom is, is definitely my favorite book that I've read in the past five, maybe even the past ten years. Um, but... Really, really good book. So, Add it to the list. Yep, yep. All right. Well, somehow, just like I feel like it's only been ten minutes now. I can't believe you're getting off the hook like this. Um, 
we're at the last question, and uh, that question is, what are you reading, or in this case, listening to right now? Right now, I'm listening to a self-help book mm -hmm. um, by Brene Brown, The Power of Vulnerability. The Power of Vulnerability. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, the typical self-help idea. Really? Yeah, well, what, what, how's it go? I mean, it just teaches you how to be authentic and put your feelings out there and, and not be scared. Right. And, I, I mean, she's a great speaker. I don't, she does a lot of TED Talks. Right. Um, so does she read the book herself on Audible? Mm -hmm. She does? Cool. cool. I like I like when authors do that. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm listening to right now. I've just finished um, Quiet, The Power of Introversion, mm -hmm. which would explain why just I'm nervous. Going for the, the vulnerability um, and the introversion. So I'm trying to and... put myself out there a little bit. <laughs> Thank uh, you. So, um, but that's, I've just started the Brene Brown book. Um, right. So far, it's really good. It's made me, makes me stop and think, and um, which I like. I like to reevaluate the way I'm looking at life sometimes. Sometimes you just need another perspective, and um, she's good for that. Right, right. So, a, a few questions about like the, about listening. Like, how, mm -hmm. how long does, does it take you to listen to a book, typically? It really just depends. Um my mom gave me a suggestion last week, actually, because I would get frustrated if I would miss part of the Audible book, I would, if I would walk out of the room or if I get interrupted or whatever. Right, right. And I would always try to go back and rewind, and I, it was taking forever to get through the book. So mom said, don't do that. Just It's okay to miss a part. Just keep listening. So I started doing that. Right. And I'm not as anxious about missing a part or did I hear that right? Or, yeah. So um, that's what I've been doing. It takes... I've probably been listening to this one for a week now. Right. It just depends on my schedule. Yeah. So it's about like reading a book then. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. kind of catch as catch can. Whenever I can get it in. Yeah. I agree with what your mom said. That's, you know, because like oftentimes when you're reading a book, there'll definitely be passages that you kind of sleepwalk through, mm -hmm. you know, or are you really tired or something like that. And and I think you miss stuff. And the good, I don't know if you ever go back and listen to anything again, but usually, you know, like I often find myself reading things again. Mm -hmm. And and it's like, uh, have you ever been driving down the road and you're on a route that you've gone, you know, hundreds of times and mm -hmm. yet you see like a little stretch of the road that looks brand new? Mm -hmm. You're almost enough to make you feel like you're lost for right. a second. You know, and, and so... I kind of have that experience sometimes with reading, you know, where I'm like, I've read this book before, but I, I haven't read this right. before, so it, it's good for that. It re you relate to it differently, different times in your life. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So, well, believe it or not, it's over. I, I'm, I'm totally, I wish I wanted to get you on the hook for, for more time. I see you squirm over there. But um, <laughs> thank you very much for, uh, for visiting uh, today and, and last night and for sitting down for the interview. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I'll do uh, another one. We can practice. Okay, yeah, this is Give this is just an intro. Months, yeah. Okay, okay, good to go. Your debut performance. <laughs> All right, but we'll do this again. I want to make you read a book, and, uh, okay. and we'll talk about it. We'll we'll maybe maybe the screw tape letters. Okay. It, it's much better to read it than to listen to it. Okay. How about maybe, that? Maybe. All right, so I'll do that. All right, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. All right. Internets. <laughs> All right, we'll see you in the next segment. Mating by Norman Rush 1. Guilty Repose 
another disappointee. In Africa, you want more, I think. People get avid. This takes different forms in different people, but it shows up in some form in everybody who stays there any length of time. It can be sudden. I include myself. Obviously, I mean whites in Africa, and not black Africans. The average black African has the opposite problem. He or she doesn't want enough. A whole profession called rural animation exists, devoted to making villagers want more and work harder to get it. Africans are pretty ungreedy. Elites accept it naturally. Elites are elites. But in Africa, you see middle-class white people you know for a fact are highly normal turn overnight into chain smokers or heavy drinkers or gourmets. Suddenly, you find otherwise serious people wedged in among the maids of the truly rich in the throng at the Chinese butchery, their faces clenched, determined to come away with one of the nine or ten half pints of creme fraiche that arrive from Mafakong on Wednesdays at three. You see people fixate on eating wonderfully, despite the derisory palate Botswana offers. Or they may get into quantity sex. Or you can see it strike them, there's no reason they shouldn't take a stab at getting rich before they have to leave Africa. Most expatriates only stay for a few years. And like clockwork, when they get toward the end, they start buying up carosses or carvings to resell. Or they decide to buy real estate through Botswana proxies, or in one case, to found the first peewee golf course south of the Sahara. I knew someone who was an etched mama's boy in real life who took insane risks smuggling wristwatches into Zimbabwe on weekends. He was at the very end of his contract. He was teaching law at the University of Botswana. In my case, disappointment was behind it. I got disgusting. I was typical, avid, and frantic. It was fall 1980, meaning spring in Africa. Africa had disappointed me. I had just spent 18 months in the bush, all by myself, basically. My thesis was in nutritional anthropology, and what I had been supposed to show was that fertility in what are called remote-dwelling populations fluctuates according to the season, because a large part of what remote dwellers eat depends on what they can find when they go out gathering, which should affect fertility, or so I have been led to believe. It was unso. I had to hunt for gatherers. Gathering was a dead issue in my part of the bush. Normal-type food seems to have percolated everywhere, even in the heart of the Twaspang Hills. One way or another, people were getting regular canned food and cornflakes, or getting relief food, sorghum and maize, from the World Food Program. So nobody bothered with gathering much, and I had an exploded thesis on my hands. On top of which, I had been a bystander during something interpersonally very nasty in Katang, the main village in my research zone. A Dutch cooperant had been hounded to death by the local power structure, old Boer settler families who'd become Botswana citizens when independence came. It still bothers me. Then, on top of that, I was having irregular periods, 
which turned out to be due to physical stress and my monochrome diet, which was as I suspected, but which I needed to do something about, not be worried about. It intersected my turning 32. I gave up and retreated to the capital, Gaborone, ostensibly to regroup, but in fact, to regress. When I find myself in a homogenous phase of my life, I like to have a caption for it. Guilty repose is what I came up with for my Cesare in Gaborone, which softens it. I went slightly decadent. It only lasted a couple of months. I had no real excuse for not going back to the U.S. I told myself it was the prospect of another birthday at the hands of my mother. The more birthdays with her I missed, the more grandiose and excruciating the catch-up birthday always was, and I was years overdue. I had de facto promised to spend my 32nd with her if I was back in the States. I knew it was her guilt over being poor when she raised me, over being gigantic, that drove her to be so Wagnerian about my birthdays, but that wasn't enough. I was innervated. Wanting company entered into it. I was tired of my own company, and there was no one I had left behind or even on the horizon in the States. I was feeling sexually alert. There's no place like Gaborone for a detached white woman with a few social graces, even someone feeling very one down. In fact, for a disappointee, Gaborone was perfect, because you circulate in a medium of other whites who are disappointed too. Nobody uses the word. Accumulated Whites There are more whites in Africa than you might expect, and more in Botswana than most places in Africa. Whites accumulate in Botswana. Parliament works, and the courts are decent. So the West is hot to help with development projects. So white experts pile in. Botswana has almost the last hunter-gatherers anywhere. So you have anthropologists and anthropologists manke like me underfoot. From South Africa, you get fugitive white and black politicals. The whites mostly passing through, except for the bravest and hardiest. The Boers can reach out and touch anyone they want in Gaborone. Spies of all kinds are profuse, since everybody wants to know when the Republic of South Africa is going to combust, and Gaborone is only five hours by roads from Pretoria and Johannesburg. The Russian embassy is huge. And then Botswana is a geographical receptacle for civil service Brits, excessed as decolonization moved ever southward. These are people who are forever structurally maladapted to living in England. This is their last perch in Africa. Tories from the Black Lagoon, or Paleo-Tories, Nelson Denoon called them. Their politics are so primitive right. They're interesting from the anthropological standpoint, but there are too many of them. Then you have the white cooperants and volunteers, a hundred in the Peace Corps alone. You have droves of white game hunters and viewers heading north. Botswana has the last places in Africa wild animals have never seen a white face. There are only a million Botswana. And there are the missionaries. 
I think I tend to exploit missionaries, which I really have to not do if I'm going to be negative toward them behind their backs. The Carmelite sisters in Katong were unfailingly nice to me when I dropped in on them for a place to stay, where I could get a hot bath and some fresh vegetables when I couldn't take it anymore in the bush. That happened periodically. A Seventh-day Adventist couple put me up for two weeks when I decided to malinger in Gaborone instead of going back to the U.S. I don't know if I should omit missionaries from my globalizing about disappointment or not. I don't think so, although their absolutely seamless cheerfulness is designed to keep you from even conceiving the possibility. On the face of it, they seem to get what they want. They do entrench their sects and denominations and keep Africans flowing into them. But they've got to be at least queasy over the tremendous and steady defections to the spiritualist churches, which are syncretist Christian enterprises created and run by Africans and distinguished by certain doctrinal novelties like drinking seawater for your ulcers. All the missionaries I stayed with showed a certain interest in my, shall we say, spiritual orientation. I don't think I tease them. I didn't misrepresent myself, but I didn't give them the full frontal either. I used to think of myself as anti-clerical, but not anti-religious. But that was before I met Nelson Denoon, who was both, and violently. He worked on my attitudes, directly and otherwise. It was an interest of his. I think I'm being fair. It was automatic with him to try to get people he, shall we say, loved, to agree with him on such matters. I still need to concentrate on how much of where I am now is Danoon's influence and how much is normal personal evolution. Danoon is pushing into this before he's historically due, naturally. So I stayed with my Adventists in a reclusive way initially. First of all, I had to confront a resurgence of the conviction that I was academically accursed. Was I really so marginal? Why had I had to wait a week before hearing whether I'd pass my orals when the norm was to be told the next day? I felt intelligent. What was wrong? Why was everything so protracted and grudging with me? Why was I unable ever to figure out how you get to be someone's protege? It happened all around me at Stanford, but never to me. After a few days in Gaborone, I was able to reconvince myself again that everything was in essence bad luck or the after-effects of the genteel poverty I grew up in. I got under control. In those days, the people in immigration were more than easygoing. It took me less than an hour to get my visa extended for a year. Then, I was ready to circulate. And so comes to a close another episode of It's in a Book. Thank you very much for coming along to listen. Uh, a few notes on the way out. I did look into whether or not Norman Rush had published another book. And indeed, in 2013, uh, September type, he published a book called Subtle Bodies. Uh, I've, I've looked up a few reviews while I was putting the podcast together. Didn't review very well, but... 
Norman Rush, uh, I don't know, his his uh, his prose isn't for everyone, but the people who like it really like it, and I happen to be one of those people, so I'm definitely going to get on Amazon or head down to Barnes & Noble and, uh, and get a copy of the book and check it out as soon as possible. Um, can't go on for too long. You may hear Catherine. She's on the floor behind me, uh, no longer satisfied with the magazine that I gave her to destroy. Um, as far as reading is concerned, um, not doing as much of it as I'd like to right now. I'll be right there, babe. But uh, my wife is taking up the slack for us both. And uh, my next read is a book by Don DeLillo called Point Omega. Uh, I got to go grab this kid. Uh, thanks again for listening. We'll see you in a fortnight. It's in a book. Bye-bye.